Hey, Radiohead listeners, Alyssa here. As Radiohead's executive producer, I just wanted to pop in and thank you all for tuning in and making Year One such an interesting, exciting, and deeply rewarding experience. This episode will be the last of the season, but we will be back with more news and expertise in January. You're listening to Radio Ed, a University of Denver podcast. We're your hosts, Nicole Militello, Alyssa Hurst, and I'm Lauren Fultzenberg. Right now, if you have a baby in this country or get seriously ill or have to take care of a family member, you are guaranteed 12 weeks off of work. But there's a catch. You won't get paid, which is a problem for a lot of people who simply can't afford to miss those paychecks. So this month, Colorado voters approved something called Proposition 118, which sets up a state-run fund and expands this paid benefit to most Colorado workers. Jennifer Greenfield researches healthcare policy and, in particular, paid family leave at DU's Graduate School of Social Work. She joined us via Zoom and explained what it all means. It's kind of a combination of a disability insurance as well as uh, insurance to cover when we need to care for a family member, um, maybe a sick child, maybe um, we're welcoming a new child into the family and um, we need some time off from work. It also covers caregiving for older adults or for a spouse um, or for, in Colorado's case, for somebody who is like family to us. Um, and so if we have a, an aunt that is like a mom to us, then it would cover that as well. Um, but then it also has this disability component so that it covers if, um, if we ourselves get sick and need some time off of work, uh, our, our pay would be covered uh, for that as well. That's what was so interesting to me about the Colorado Proposition 118 is I think most people think of paid family leave as for new parents. Why do you think it was important to cover these other things like personal injury or caring for a family member or even leave for survivors of domestic violence or sexual assault? Sure, I think the key is that life happens, right? And we can't predict um, when something unexpected is gonna come up. Um, parental leave is critically important. There's tons of research that shows us that it's great uh, for babies and for new parents. Um, it really helps with the health and development of uh, infants as well as the health and mental health of the parents. But there's all kinds of other things that also happen. And there may be workers who aren't planning to have children um, who are, or who have already had their children. Um, and they need coverage too for when something happens. Um, I, you know, when your um, seven-year-old gets sick and needs treatment in a hospital, when your parent falls and needs uh, time, you know, to have a hip replaced or something like that, and you need to be there for those times as well. And so this makes it more of a universal program. So all workers can see themselves in it. Um, we can all see one of these things could happen to us, even if the parenting piece isn't the thing that we're most concerned about. Paid family leave is hardly universal in the United States here. I think Colorado is the ninth state, maybe plus Washington, D.C., to pass some sort of system. Do you think the United States is ahead of the game or, or behind the game? Um, in, it's famously quoted that we're one of three countries that uh, in the entire world that doesn't offer some kind of maternity leave at a minimum. Um, and there are countries around the world that offer uh, even more extensive uh, kinds of coverage for family issues, for workers' own medical issues, and so on. Um, it's interesting in the conferences that I go to when I present on the issues uh, that we've been researching here on paid leave in the United States, 
they sort of smile um, when we present because we're debating whether we should have eight weeks or 12 weeks of leave when um, most of the industrialized countries in the world have uh, a year of leave or, um, you know, we sometimes debate whether we should have six months or a year. Uh, there's countries that have done two years of leave and have found that maybe that's just a little bit too much. And so um, we really are behind the times in terms of uh, providing basic protections for our workers for when they get sick or when they um, have children. Why is it that we're so far behind these other countries in terms of paid family leave? Is it something in the American DNA? You know, I think that we're seeing even um, in the current pandemic, the pushback against wearing masks or other kinds of uh, regulations that um, folks in this country don't want to be told what to do by by a government, especially by the federal government, um, and even you know at the state level, and so. This is telling people to pay into a social insurance program. And it might be that you know a, a given worker may not use that benefit or they may not use it for the first 10 years that the program is available. And so there are some uh, folks who, who hesitate to pay into a program if they're not gonna directly receive a benefit from it. Um, and this is the push and pull that we see in the United States you know, in so many different ways that paying into a general pool to assist our neighbors um, is not always something that comes naturally to us. And I think that that's where we need to continue to have the conversation about this is something that helps our neighbors and that then by extension actually does help us as well. Right, and it's not like we haven't had time to develop this because I think the, the Family Medical Leave Act, the federal one was passed in 1993. That's right, so we have a long history of having some access for um, most workers, but a significant portion of workers are left out even from that law. And that law didn't provide paid leave. And so it just provides the right to take some time off and then have a job waiting for you when you're ready to return to work. But it didn't provide any kind of income support. And so obviously that time off is unaccessible to a lot of folks who really depend on their paycheck in order to put food on the table or keep, keep a roof over their heads. Right. And it's only 12 weeks, not 52 or 104. <laughs> right. right. Exactly. So this is, you know, it's been an ongoing debate. And when FMLA was passed 20, what, seven years ago, um, it was uh, the, the, the initial proposal was to have some paid components, some income support, and that was taken off the table. And so this sort of grand compromise was struck. And um, unfortunately, that's where we've remained stuck since then. And so there have been these statewide initiatives that um, uh, began to sort of trickle forward, but in the last couple of years, we've now seen a number of states um, that have begun to implement these programs at the state level. And it gives us this opportunity to do some research um, to test whether some of the concerns that businesses have articulated are, um, you know, have played out and are, are genuine concerns or not. And what we see is that um, businesses are actually not harmed as much as they worry they may be um, when these uh, programs are implemented at the state level um, and that workers benefit a tremendous amount. And so this gives us the, the chance to sort of test out different parameters. Different states um, have kind of different guidelines, different levels of income replacement and so forth. And we can test and see what's working uh, what isn't working, and then um, that will inform, hopefully, the national conversation about this.
Yeah, I want to come back to those concerns from businesses in just a second. But first, I think it's important to lay out exactly how Colorado's system will work and maybe how it's different from other states. Sure. Colorado's system is actually um, similar to several of the programs that have been um, uh, passed and implemented in recent years. Uh, we are not with our program, we are not going to be extreme outliers in any way. I can go over kind of the basics of it. Workers and businesses will have an equal share in paying for this program. And so um, the average premium that will be paid by each worker will be a little under $4 a week, but that is staggered by income level. And so the lower income workers will pay less, the higher income workers will pay more, but the amount that's paid is capped. And so um, there will never be paying more than it's about $7 a week for the highest income workers. And then businesses essentially match that contribution. Um, and there are certain times when a business is carved out where they won't have to pay. And so if, if it's a very small business with 10 workers or less, they will not have to contribute a premium. Um, and if it's someone who's self-employed, they only pay the employee part, not the employer part. There are a few states that have even a higher uh, wage replacement than we will have, but we are certainly not the lowest either. And so the hope is that that will put us at a wage replacement rate that helps people to kind of have their finances stabilized um, without breaking the bank for the state or for businesses. So Colorado's program won't start collecting premiums until 2023 and won't start until 2024. And I guess, Jennifer, that's bad news for anyone was, who was hoping that this would help during the coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, it's true. We do have some um, paid sick days and uh, paid medical leave available through the coronavirus relief packages that Congress passed back in the spring. But unfortunately, those expire at the end of December. And at this point, um, the a new coronavirus relief package is stalled unless the Senate moves forward with um, either debating what the House has passed or bringing their own bill forward. Colorado workers are going to be left um, kind of unprotected uh, as this pandemic continues to rage through the beginning of 2021. One thing I will mention, though, is that we uh, did also pass a paid sick days initiative um, or I'm sorry, legislation that kicks in January 1st. And so workers will begin to earn uh, paid sick leave through that bill, but it will take about 36 weeks. Um, so until the fall for full-time workers to actually get a full week of uh, sick days. And so this you know, winter and spring, as we're all still reeling from the effects of the pandemic, it is something um, to be concerned about that Colorado's workers will be largely unprotected and unable to access income when they get sick. So Jennifer, we've talked a lot about the ins and outs of this policy, thrown around a lot of statistics. What will be the real life impact for people who choose to utilize this? So I think that for 80% of Colorado's workers um, right now, if a family member gets sick, um, there's no guarantee that they can take time off of work to help that family member get to doctor's appointments, to make them chicken soup um, when they need it at home. You know, um, I've had family members and coworkers with, who've had kids who had cancer um, and getting them to the hospital for their chemo treatments, getting them home, caring for them. 
um, when the child has a compromised immune system and can't go out in public. And so a parent has to be there with them. Um, you know, if you think about going through that and then knowing that you also have just lost your income, um, I think that this is where the workers can have a little bit of peace of mind knowing that actually their job is waiting for them, that a paycheck is still gonna be deposited into the bank. And so they're gonna be able to make their mortgage or rent payment. They're gonna be able to go to the store and buy the chicken soup. Um, and so that kind of peace of mind is incredibly important to folks. And right now, 80% of Colorado's workers do not have it. And so I think that that will substantially change how people experience illness here in the state. It took a long time to get this thing passed and it ultimately took going to the voters. Um, I think starting in, in 2014, the legislature was trying to pass this into law, but even with all of the branches controlled by Democrats, it failed. Can you tell us a little bit about what the hangup was and why Colorado ultimately decided to take this to the voters? Sure, I think there has been um, you know, growing positive sentiment about paid family leave among um, Colorado voters and across the country, uh, voters across the country have been polled and in general are in favor. But business owners and particularly um, small business owners have had concerns. And I think that um, Colorado legislators um, and the governor have maybe been a little hesitant um, to implement something when business owners have been crying out to say this will hurt us. Um, and unfortunately, I think that some of the concern, some of the fear about it, it um, results from a, a lack of knowledge about what the research has showed us. Um, and so um, this is where, you know, as a researcher, I've been working to try to um, get the word out that in states that have implemented this already, when business owners are polled, um, they 90% or more say that this has had no negative effects on their business. A majority of them say it has a positive effect on their business. One of the key um, components of this that I think um, really makes the difference for businesses is that the workers and the um, employers pay into a state program. And then it's that state program, that fund, that pays the benefits back to workers when they file a claim. And so I don't have to file a claim and expect DU to be covering my salary while they're covering the salary of a temp worker or you know, someone who's covering uh, my job description. It's the state fund that covers my salary. So the business has that money available for those weeks or months to be able to pay overtime to their current workers to cover those hours or to hire a temp um, or to, you know, to do bonuses or something like that to compensate people who are um, making up for the lost work of the person who's out on leave. And I think that's a really key component. This isn't a mandate telling the businesses you have to somehow find two times the salary for the time that your worker is out. Um, instead, they're paying a small amount every month into a state fund, and then the worker can get their wages covered by that fund. We've seen strong organized opposition from businesses across Colorado. Is it just that you think they don't understand the way the proposal is laid out? Well, I think that there's some tension in um, businesses where um, they do feel that they could get replacement workers fairly quickly. And so there's not a ton of incentive for them to retain existing workers um, in, a, in a job where the, the training process isn't uh, very time intensive, then um, 
knowing that they're going to have lower costs in terms of covering, you know, turnover, that that isn't as much of an incentive for those businesses. For a lot of businesses, though, turnover costs are really significant. And so being able to retain good workers and not have to go through a hiring process and then training new workers and so on uh, is very important. And this program helps to lower those turnover costs. It actually increases productivity on the job as well, because um, you don't have a uh, you know, a subset of workers who are on the phone with insurance companies when they should be doing their jobs, um, you know, they, they're at home um, dealing with those concerns. But if you think about it in a restaurant, um, maybe those concerns aren't as prevalent because the workers either are working <laughs> or they're not. And they, um, you know, if, if they're let go from the workplace, the restaurant feels that they can hire someone new. Um, so I think that it sort of depends on what those incentives are for the different types of businesses. Um, but what we've seen, I think, you know, in this pandemic in particular, is that those workers are essential. Um, grocery store, you know, cashiers and people who are stocking our shelves, the people who are serving food in restaurants or cooking the food um, are essential workers. And that um, we are harmed when a group of them get sick and can't show up at work. And we've seen businesses that have, you know, had to close their doors, not because the governor told them to, but because they didn't have enough staff um, because people were out on quarantine or, or were actually sick. And so I'm hoping that, um, you know, this experience of the pandemic will actually help to ease concerns about the, you know, that the businesses may have and also demonstrate why having this kind of um, support is important and can actually help those businesses. The other opponent that we've seen come out is not really an organized opponent, but it's a group of people who are saying, this thing is going to be expensive. It's estimated to cost about a billion dollars a year. How can this remain solvent, especially early on in its first few years? Yeah, and so that's where you know we can look to other states that have implemented this. Um, and I think we can find some reassurance there. An interesting dynamic happened in New Jersey. They passed and implemented uh, a relatively limited program, found that that fund was so stable <laughs> and self-sustaining that um, it actually was attractive to other programs in the state and they had to pass legislation that protected the fund so that other programs couldn't dip into it. And then they passed a new legislation that actually expanded the program. Um, you know, extended benefits, increased the wage replacement and so on. It is a self-sustaining program because the workers who can benefit from it all pay in, the businesses that benefit from it all pay in. And as long as we're all making our regular payments into it, the, the money is there to cover the claims. And the fact of the matter is that in general, these types of claims um, don't vary over time. They're relatively stable. So we can look to history to see how many people are gonna give birth in a given year, how many people are gonna get cancer and need treatment in a given year. And those things don't change dramatically year to year. And so it's fairly easy to maintain a stable fund for this. As I understand it, one of the other obstacles to getting this thing passed in Colorado was a discussion or a debate around communities of color and highly vulnerable workers, who would be covered, who wouldn't, how much would they be covered? Did Colorado sort that out? So that's where uh, the initiative that was passed by the voters is actually a robust, comprehensive program. Um, it didn't have a lot of the types of carve-outs that um, had been debated in the last couple of years. 
that would have excluded a lot of the um, workers of color, um, low income workers and so on. The one um, set of workers that has, uh, it's been a highly contentious uh, topic in the legislature, and I think that there are still some concerns around this are um, seasonal workers. Obviously, Colorado um, has a lot of seasonal workers. We've got, you know, our ski industry and um, other industries that employ folks for a few months at a time. And those businesses were particularly concerned about job protection. Um, if somebody has worked for them for a month, and then needs three months off um, for an illness or, or to give birth and then expect their job back, but the season is only one, you know, gonna extend for one more month, that can be problematic. Um, and so the way that the initiative was written, workers have to have been with the employer for 180 days in order to qualify for the job protection piece of it. They can still get the benefit and the pay, um, you know, all of that, but they can't have the guaranteed job um, when they're done with their leave unless they've been with the employer for 180 days. Uh, there are some other states where that limit is only 90 days, um, and that was kind of the contentious piece here. And so Colorado did that compromise. And so there are some seasonal workers who may end up losing their position uh, if they go out on leave. And that's something that I think that we'll need to look at further um, to see how many people are affected and what the implications are for those workers. So to hop back over to the national debate for a second here, where do things stand now and how has Colorado steered this discussion with the passage of Proposition 118? You know, I think that Colorado's um, passage of this initiative is influential in the national debate. Um, it's the first initiative that was taken to the voters and where the voters are the ones who actually chose to implement this and with a fairly wide margin. And so that can give, I think, national legislators some um, some peace, <laughs> um, maybe some hope that, uh, that this will not be an unpopular measure if they pass it at the federal level. Um, Colorado, you know, did vote in large part for Joe Biden, but I think that there is a, still a very strong active um, conservative um, slash libertarian contingent in Colorado that um, you know has been in opposition to this and yet we can see with the wide margin in Colorado that um, you know that this may be something that that crosses those partisan lines um, and that there are a lot of workers and and business owners that can see the benefit of this and it can um, you know be in support of this when they might not be in support of, of other types of social programs. And so I think that at the federal level, that will certainly be influential in the conversation. The other thing is that paid family leave um, is popular with voters across the country. Poll after poll show that this is a popular measure. And um, so the dynamics that uh, are, you know, we're preventing it from passing legislatively in Colorado are similar to the dynamics that um, are, you know, serving as an obstacle at the federal level. And I hope that legislators will take comfort in looking at the vote margins here in Colorado, as well as the research that show the benefits of this. And hopefully that will influence that conversation. Our country has been working on this for a long time. Colorado has been working on this for a long time. And you personally have been working on this for a very long time. Yep. What was it like for you to see this thing finally pass? A huge wave of relief. Um, it, you know, this is um, 
it's one of those situations where I got into the research um, because I was curious. I wanted to see, does this you know, harm folks? Um, are there reasons why we should push forward with it anyway? Um, and so on. And the research is, um, it's fairly uncomplicated. Um, it really tells a positive picture about paid family leave. And so um, when I you know, look at it from all of those different angles, it makes it so clear to me. And so then it's frustrating um, when it's not clear to others, you know, and I, I um, you know, been, been trying to figure out what's the best way to pull this together and, um, you know, really tell the story of paid family leave and how it plays out in the states where it's been implemented um, and what the, what the, you know, benefits are that I think are incredibly important. Um, and so it's, it's a relief to see that it passed here. I am excited to actually get to the point where it's being implemented. Obviously, as a researcher, um, I can't wait to study <laughs> how that plays out in Colorado. But in the meantime, um, you know, I do think that uh, there will be a robust conversation about this kind of program at the federal level. And so I hope that I can continue to be involved in those conversations as well. That's Jennifer Greenfield, an associate professor in DU's Graduate School of Social Work. Her interest in this topic actually stems from personal experience. She tells her story in an article you'll find in our show notes at du.edu slash radioed. Alyssa Hurst is our executive producer. Tamara Chapman is our managing editor. James Swearing and arranged our theme. I'm Lauren Fultonberg. Enjoy the holidays, stay safe, and we'll see you back here in January for season two of Radio Ed. <laughs>